And the title of my message today is A People in Love. And if you have your Bibles, can we turn together to Revelation chapter 2 and Acts 19, please? I'm going to ask you to bear with me today because today we're going to be jumping between these two books. We're going to do a bit of teaching today. Um, in the recent months, the Lord has been speaking to me um, very closely on the theme of longevity and affections. And I say this because next year will be my 10 year in ministry, that means it's my 10 year in full time. And the Lord has been telling me it's not how well I start, but it's how well I end. And there's this growing cry in my heart, Lord, let me finish well, full of love and the grace of God. And today we will take a look at the church of Ephesus. And we know more about this church than we know about any other church in the Bible. And when you read Revelation chapter 2 on your own, whether it's home, in your devotions, you need to remember that these churches introduced in Revelation chapter 2, they are not fictional, but they are real historical churches. And we watch Ephesus' birth in Acts 19. We watch Ephesus gets encouraged in the book of Ephesians. We watch Ephesus gets challenged in 1st and 2nd Timothy. And we watch Ephesus gets rebuked in the letters by John. And we watch Ephesus gets threatened by Christ himself in Revelation chapter 2. And today I want us to look at the end and also at the beginning because this is the prophetic word, this is the preventive word, and this is also a prescriptive word for all of us. And let's consider our own lives in light of Christ's warning. So let's start with Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 to 7. And this letter was written by the Apostle John. He was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And the timeline uh, for this letter is that this letter was written about 40 years after the birth of the church. So starting in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the works of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toy and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And there are some things about this church that I want to highlight. Because at the beginning, when I read this portion of scripture, it sounds like the kind of church I want my whole kampong to join, right? Because it says, I know your works, your toy. And the word works is kopos. It means working to the point of exhaustion, the kind of toy that takes everything that mind and will can bring. And this bunch of people, they don't quite quit ministry. I know this word, quite quit, is a popular phrase among the young people right now. And, but they were giving everything they had. Perhaps these people were the ones serving for Saturday 5 p.m. as well as Sunday, three services, day in and day out. And these people are like giving all they had for the glory of God. And next, we can see that they are doctrinally sound and they are strong in the Word. How do I know this? Because the only way you can spot a false teacher is to know true teaching, right? So if someone comes up and says, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher, and they come to the pulpit and they start to teach something really wonky, the church will be like, you are no apostle. Just keep quiet and get out of here. And I think our deacons and our pastors will just throw them out of the, of the church. So they are trained and they are equipped. And from its conception, they have been laying the right foundations. And wolves strive in churches when there's biblical illiteracy, and that's not what's happening right here. 
and their pastoral team were the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Let me try to explain the type of caliber they had in their pastoral team. We first read in Acts chapter 18 that the work was first started by Aquila and Priscilla. They then became the first pastors. They were also taught by Apollos and their theology was so sound that they could measure anyone against the truth and expose error. Later, we can also see that Timothy passed the church at Ephesus. Then another faithful man, his name is Tychicus, he also passed it there. So I want you to see this entire group of people. You have Aquila, you have Priscilla, you have Apollos, Paul, Timothy, Tychicus, and John. Even Apostle John. Sometimes I stand on the pulpit, I expound scripture, but... John wrote scripture. He heard directly from Jesus' words. He leaned on Jesus' breast to hear his heart. And in our church, we have Pastor Yang, Pastor Lip, we have Pastor Diane giving prophetic apostolic word. But can you imagine these preachers, Tychicus, Apollos, John, uh, Paul, sitting on the first row every weekend? The cream of the crop, the best of the best. And Ignatius, a church father, would later write that no... No heresy or errant doctrine could gain an audience with the Ephesians church. This was their standard. This was their reputation. And let's continue in verse 3. It says, they persevered and they endured. Why persevere? I want to say that recently, a few people have been saying things like, wow, this era is the worst era to live in. It's so hard to be a Christian right now. But can I suggest to you that the Christians living in the book of Acts also had it tough. Let's stop and ponder for a second. Right now, we are looking around the world, we are saying, oh my word, it's such a depraved and sex-obsessed culture we are living in right now. But let me just give you some context of what the early Christians had to go through in that city. Because the skyline of the city of Ephesus was dominated by the temple diner. And not only did this temple dominate the skyline, but it essentially had a dramatic impact on the totality of life in the city of Ephesus. The servants of the diner will ply their trade in the streets of Ephesus, all kinds of practices, okay? Most of them immoral. And there was within the framework of the city a mixture of magic and religion and that temple was also a century for criminals, right? So it's beyond description. And historians say that there were scores of eunuchs, priests, prostitutes, all daily going about their rituals. Their worship was a kind of hysteria, a debauchery, a drunkenness, and a great sexual deviation. And this was the atmosphere and environment that the church was started. Ephesus was nicknamed the light of Asia, Luminasia. But if you think about it, it was one of the darkest cities. But in spite of this oppressive environment, some of the greatest victories of grace that were ever won were won in this city because Christ built his church over there and the church flourished, amen? And this was one of the best accounts of church plan ever. And since we are on a roll on seeing how amazing this church is, let's take a pause from Revelations and go to Acts 19 to see how the church expanded. We will focus on verse 9 to 16 of Acts chapter 19. We can see a few key stages right here. Verse 9 to 10, we can see that at the port of Tyrannus, Paul reasoned every day for two years preaching the word of God every day for two years. Cell leaders, if you have to teach every Friday, don't complain. Okay? This guy was teaching every day for two years until the Bible literally says that all of Asia heard the teaching from the word. And when we say Asia, 
um, it doesn't mean the continent Asia, okay? It means Turkey. But isn't that amazing that every day there's TNE class, right? And then in the middle of all this preaching of the Word of God, there are these incredible miracles. The early church people have to coin this phrase called extraordinary miracle because the things that were happening on a daily basis blew their minds, right? In verse 11, it says that people are starting to steal stuff from Paul because it heals people. It says that such was the power of God that people were grabbing his sweat rag and were taking it to a sick person and the sick person was getting well. What would happen if we have this culture right now? Not just miracles, but also extraordinary and creative miracles. And I really believe with all of my heart that we have begun to see such things right now. We are at the fringes of this reality and we need to keep pushing forward. Amen? And verse 13 to 14, he says that he was casting out demons left and right. There was this Jewish itinerant associate who had seven sons. They are called the seven sons of Sceva. And they watched Paul cast out demons and they have been dabbling with the occult. So they know things about the supernatural, but they saw Paul and they knew, wow, this guy, he has the real deal. He's, he's, he's doing something that we have never done before. Okay? And they decided, that looks cool. We should try that. So they go and find a demon-possessed person. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not a good idea. Right? They say to this man, in the name of Jesus Christ, pause God, I command you to come out. And the demon begins to speak to them and say, I know Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? I don't know about you, but I want to be so fully surrendered to God and to be so spirit-filled that when the demons have their staff meeting in hell, they will say, look out for Pastor Elijah because he will be wrecking damage to our kingdom. And he said, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then a demon-possessed man turns on the brothers, beats them bloody and naked, and they flee the house. Rick Warren says that Christ-likeness is not produced by imitation, but by inhabitation. The power to cast out demons does not come by imitation, but it comes by fully surrendering your heart and your spirit to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And I have a deep desire that no one in this auditorium will ever receive those questions. Who are you? Amen? And that's what happened in Acts 19. And when that happened, the Bible says that awe and wonder and the fear of the Lord filled the entire city. Next, the Holy Spirit also fell in such a unique way that the whole social economic climate of the city changed. What do I mean by that? We see this in verse 24. Those who make money off the selling of idols couldn't make money anymore. That means the entire income stream was from the selling of idols. And the blacksmith, Demetrius from the blacksmith union, I call it that, okay, was so upset that he incited a riot. The theme of his entire chant was that diner must be protected, our way of life must be preserved because they were losing money. And how amazing would it be to drive down to whatever place in Singapore, Clark Key or whatever, and you see the pubs and the clubs all closed because no one else is going there anymore because their hearts are transformed. And that's what happened in Ephesus. All right? So now we have the full context of seeing how amazing this church was. We go back to Revelation chapter 2. The letter by Jesus to the church of Ephesus. As mentioned, this letter was written 40 years after that amazing revival. And we heard the amazing commendation just now in verse 2 and 3. Now we come to verse 4. It says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
the beginning was amazing, but over time, that newness, that initial love faded, and the Ephesians, you need to bear in mind, they were not strained in their doctrine, nor in their behaviour, but in their affections. And this problem may be hard to perceive, because you may be doing all the right things, believing all the right things, and yet a coldness may also entangle your heart. You know, Bisley Murray, when he made a remark about this entire story, he said, if the price paid by the Ephesians for the preservation of their Christianity was the loss of love, then that price was too high. For Christianity without, lo without love is a perverted faith. And this was the church that understood spiritual authority, and unusually so. They were able to spot false teachers. They were able to bring order and adjustment to structure, and they did it incredibly well. But in the structuring of things, they lost the passion. They had the order, they had the government. And here's the thing about structure and government, that it's important and good. It's ordained by God. But when we look at the bride ascending down in Revelations, we can see that structure and order is supposed to come out of intimacy. It's keeping things tender and not losing our wonder. Amen? That's why Paul constantly reminds us in 2 Corinthians. He says, do not forget to go back to the simplicity of our devotion to Christ. Amen? So the, church, so the Lord tells us that if they just go back to doing what they did at the beginning, then their love and their desire for Him will be restored. Because a church that has knowledge on the character of God and does not find herself having their first love is waiting for someone else to buy their building. And this is what Jesus meant when He said, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your influence and your authority. And did that happen? Yes, that happened. Because history tells us that the church was gone after a few years. But the beauty of the grace of God is He doesn't just tell us what's wrong and leave us as that. But He shows us how to get right. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do what you did when you first got saved. And the question is, what were the first works? I know there are many sermons about first love and sometimes the preacher might be saying that remember what you did when you first got saved. Remember what the Lord has instilled in your heart. And that's true and that's good. But just for this morning, I want us to carefully consider from the text itself. Let's go back to Acts 19. Let's ask ourselves, what were the things they did at first when the church first started? And we can see in verse 17 to 20 of Acts 19, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. And from this text, we can see three main keys. In the beginning, they were extolling the name of Christ. And here's what extol means. It means to lift up, to esteem. So whatever else they were doing, one of the works that we see in Ephesus at the beginning is they were so captivated by the supremacy and the beauty of Christ that they're constantly lifting Him up. They loved Him in song, in prayer, in the Lord's Supper, in conversation. They shared testimonies. They kept sharing about what Christ has done in their lives. But this wasn't just in a church or a cell setting. Okay? This was a company of people that were so transfixed by the goodness and the beauty of the Lord that they can't help but extol His name and His deeds to the outside world. 
They were doing the work of an evangelist, even though they were not evangelists. They brought the church out of the four walls and they did this not because of church growth is important, but they did it because they were in love. And some of you, um, the Lord is writing prophetic songs in your heart. The Lord is birthing songs of praise and worship in your heart. I want to encourage you to just keep singing unto the Lord. Amen. And if you have not been sharing the good news of Christ for the past one to two years, I pray that your hearts will be challenged today. Amen. Can we be the reason why our unbelieving friends believe in the goodness of the Lord? Amen. And they extol the name of the Lord, but they also walk in transparency. And what you see them doing is they were confessing and divulging their practices. It means that it wasn't just a one-time thing, all right? And divulging is not just talking about the wrong that you did. You don't just talk about your struggles, but you honestly share on the brokenness of your heart. It's not just me telling Pastor Pian, Pastor Pian, yesterday I did this, I, I, I cheated or I stole something, but it's, I, I bear my heart to him and say, the reason why I did this, because there is a void in my heart. There's an insecurity in my heart. I'm so honest with the Lord. And there are many accounts of previous revivals of people coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They begin to publicly confess their sin and their brokenness because it's not just dealing with the symptoms but you're willing to expose the root of it all, amen? They didn't care how others view them because no one graduates from the school of repentance, amen? This is a gift from God and God has constantly asked us to seek Him and to repent so that we can be like Him. You know, after Adam's sin, he did two things relationally that he couldn't have done prior. First, he hid from God. Second, he blamed his wife for his sin. And his relationship was, with God was fractured and thus his relationship with other people was broken. And because we have inherited his nature, we also replicate his behaviour. And the lie the enemy will try to tell you all the days of your life is that if you confess your sin, then those around you will be ashamed of you or God won't approve of you. Because there's nothing that Satan would rather have you do than to keep your sin to yourself because if he can keep you accused, he can cause you to be unused for the kingdom of God. Amen? I'm not going to say that confession won't be messy, right? But to think that hiding your sin is better than confessing it is a lie from the enemy because Jesus will only cover what you choose to confess. Bring it to the light. Amen? Second thing that we see is they burn their magic books. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it came to the pricing of about 50,000 pieces of silver. That means this was like a, the yearly salary of 137 people. They were not forced, they were not coerced. They did so because their hearts are full of love. And I think for many of us, when it comes to sin, we think that, I leave this to me lah. Pastor, leave this to me. I've got this. I can handle this. I know a technique that can manage this. But let me say this to you. You cannot manage sin because sin will manage you. But when we look at what they did in Acts 19, they did whatever it takes to please the Lord. And the sum was not an issue. And this passage shows the seriousness about holiness which led them to right action. They were not passive about their sin. On top of that, Ephesus was notorious for its use of these magic dark arts. So to the world, it would have been fine just to keep their books because this was so ingrained in their culture. That's why it's so easy for us to justify our idols. And if Judas was living in those days, I can 
Imagine him saying, eh, don't burn the books. Lah. Sell it, sell it. Give the money to the poor. And you know, I think that in each one of our hearts, there is a Demetrius shouting every day, protect your idols, protect our way of life. And every time the Holy Spirit threatens to expound the idols from our heart, Demetrius will pop his ugly head out because he wants to protect his way of life. And A.W. Tozer said that much of our difficulty in life stems from our unwillingness to take God as He is and adjust our lives accordingly. But the church of Ephesus, they took God as He is and realized that their practices did not line up, did not match up to the glory of God. So they adjusted their lives and got rid of everything that wasn't glorifying to God. That means they established roadblocks against their sin. They brought everything hidden in the closet brought it out to the light. Because when God's presence becomes real, sin becomes intolerable. Amen? I want you to imagine with me, this whole scene involved these three moving parts. It must have looked messy. Imagine after service in Ephesus, you see people running about, carrying the books. Say, where are you going? You see a bonfire there. You see people confessing, crying, and like, hey, what's going on? Why your church so weird? And say, no, 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 no. We, we are new believers. We don't know what's going on. And we thought that this is part of our culture, but we heard the word of God. We heard Paul. We heard Apollos. And we realized that this is not right. So we are burning it. And it looks messy. But when God looked down at the church, he smiled. Because they were messy, but they were in love. Because their hearts are so filled with the glory of God. Amen? It's authentic Christianity. Amen? Because once you have been freed from the bondage of sin, you will have a freedom unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Which is why the scripture says that they burned the books in the sight of all. They wanted everyone to know about Jesus and the freedom they have received. And verse 20, it says, So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God prevailed and increased because the deeds were done by a people full of the Spirit who were in love. And Jesus was saying to the church, repent of any cold mechanical service to Christ and then go back to do the deeds which you did at the very beginning, allowing the Lord to change you, to respond to His word and extolling His name always. That's how we return to our first love. And what's the purpose of this message? because we are coming to the end of the year and based on history and from eyewitness accounts, the people that last, the people that sticks true to the end are people who are in love. They never get bored. They don't get familiar with the presence of the Lord. They're constantly in awe and in wonder. And the Bible shows that those who love God above all else, they are able to love their neighbours as themselves. Amen? Amen? And Revelation chapter 2 shows that if your good doctrine and your endurance and your hard works doesn't lead you to a greater affection and adoration for God, then those things are pointless. Amen? I want to share a story. Um, a while back, I received a call from one of my mentors and he was talking to me about work and um, he said something like this, okay. He said, um, Elijah, you don't have much stage presence, you can't communicate well, and you are boarding a bit. I'm like, wow, midnight, you call me and tell me all this. <laughs> but then he said this, okay, but the Spirit of the Lord is upon you because of two things. First, you are diligent and you're hardworking in the study of the Word of God. You're a Berean, okay? Oh, that's good. 
And second, he said that your heart is always tender before the Lord. And I realized that in my journey of faith, when I get more opportunities to minister, it's so easy to just focus on the first attribute. Ah, just hardworking, just be diligent, right? But I'm having this constant awareness and fear, if I can say so. Then I'm asking the Lord, Lord, let my mind or my brain and my head never be become bigger than my heart. Because it's so easy to study, to be diligent, but you lose your tenderness. But if your doctrine does not lead you to a greater worship, then it's useless. Amen? Because when that takes place, you become graceless and loveless and impatient with others, and your life message ceases to be the love and mercy that it was intended to be. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I remember a while back, while we had Circuit Breaker, we were really busy. We had TNE almost every Tuesday. We were working hard, and um, during that period, Pastor um, Daphne asked the pastoral staff to call um, our church members, okay? We were on the phone, so we were just doing all we can to make sure that the people are all right. And in, in that whole working hard for the Lord, I did not realize that my heart was beginning to be cold. There was the coldness that entangled my heart. I didn't realize it, okay? Because sometimes you're doing the right thing, you believe the right thing, you say the right things, but you just can't tell that your heart was in a faraway place, okay? And, um, but it was one night I was out with my wife, and I think, I'm not sure whether we were walking or driving, okay? But we saw someone who dropped, like carrying something and dropped all the things on the floor, okay? And she looked at me, she said, oh, go help the person. And I turned to her and said, it's okay, it's very late, let's go. And so she looked at me, and if you're married, right, I pray that you will never receive that look from your wife. Um, it's not, uh, it's, it wasn't humorous, okay? because that look was like, who did I marry? I can't recognize the person that I married. And then that very night, I think, she, because that was just an, not just an isolated incident, but there were a few other hints along the way in the past few weeks, okay. And then that night, she came to me, and she was tearing, and she said, what happened to you? What happened to your heart? And you caught so many people, but how come is your heart is like that? And I'm so grateful for my wife's prophetic word. <laughs> and I want to tell you that, oh, automatically, the next day, I felt the love of God. No, no, no. I had to go through a process of repentance, confessing, decluttering, going back where my heart is tender before the Lord. I just want to encourage all of you that we come to the end of the year, so many sermons being preached, some of you are working so hard, copos, copos, to the point of exhaustion, working to the point of our heart will and everything. But do not lose your first love. Amen. I want us to prepare our hearts um, to take the Holy Communion. And First Timothy chapter four verse sixteen it says, "Pay close attention to yourself." Oh, amazing. Paul, one of the last letters that he wrote to Timothy, he said that yes, you are a good leader but you still have to watch yourself and have self-awareness. You know, doctors study heart monitors to watch a patient. One indicator out of normal and an alarm goes off. And we need to remind ourselves every day of these questions. How is my heart? 
How is my thought life? How am I walking with the Lord? Is there a desire to see so safe? Is there a growing desire to please the Lord? Do an audit on yourself before the year ends. Amen? Let's prepare to take the Holy Communion. But right now, I want us to take some time, probably just a few seconds to one minute, just to search our hearts. Because the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. Ask yourself this question, how is my heart, Lord? Review it to me. Maybe you have forsaken or left your first love and the Lord is revealing the state of your heart. The Lord is revealing the first works. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to just read this over to you. He said that, may the Lord grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And Paul knew that no matter how hard he worked, no matter how many sermons he preached, he could not make people understand how much Jesus loves them because there was nothing he could physically do to bring about this depth of understanding and he knew that at the end of the day he can just get down on his knees raise his hands and pray that daily that the spirit of God will quicken and strengthen their inner man so they can finally understand the love of Christ and Lord even as we prepare our hearts Lord I ask for the spirit of the Lord to strengthen our inner man Give us lenses to see that we are created for affection. Perhaps some of you, when you go for evangelistic services, and when you see people raise up their hands to accept Christ, there's no burning in your hearts. Perhaps last time you used to have this joy, but to you it's like, ah, it's just another service. Or when someone talks about healing and restoration, there's no joy or quickening your heart because to you, it's just another miracle. And the Lord is saying that you have lost the tenderness that you once had with me. And Lord, I pray even as we humble ourselves, the grace of the Lord does not just reveal to us where we have fallen short but you have always given us a way out. So remember who you are and what you have done. We are so grateful for the grace and the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.